and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. What can you do when your society is responsible for racist atrocities? What should you do? Today I'm talking to Susan Nyman, who has spent much of her adult life living in a country with a horrific legacy, Germany. She's Jewish and grew up in the American South, and she's just written a book about what the US can learn from the way Germany deals with its past. Learning from the Germans, Confronting Race and the Memory of Evil, is about moral legacies and how to confront them. Susan is a moral philosopher and director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam. Welcome to the bunker, Susan. Are you in Berlin now? Yes, I am. How has the city changed during the pandemic? Is it getting back to normal? So far, we've done really better than most countries in Europe. And uh, it's been rather normal for quite a while. You know, everybody's on edge a bit, but we've been able to do most things for quite some time, except go to clubs. Everybody wears masks in, um, you know, closed public spaces, but we've done quite well, fortunately. Germany has been a single country for 30 years now, but after the Second World War, of course, Berlin was divided by the war. So East and West Germans had a totally different approach to what Susan calls Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, which is working off the past, trying to deal with the legacy of Nazism. Um, tell us a little bit about those different approaches, Susan. So what people often forget is that the first victims of the Nazis were not Jews, they were communists, first communists and social democrats. And it took a while. I mean, they spewed anti-Semitic propaganda for a long time, but the people that they really attacked first were communists. And what that meant is that when the war was over, the leadership of East Germany, uh, which had been in exile or in Spain fighting with the Republicans or in concentration camps, they were genuine anti-fascists. So their interest in getting rid of Nazi ideology was quite deep and intense, and they put more old Nazis on trial, uh, kicked more old Nazis out of uh, their jobs and their offices, redid the educational system. Now, of course, like any state ideology, um, it was also abused in certain ways. But it, it's certainly true that in the, f in the first four decades of uh, 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 after the war, East Germany was much more deeply anti-fascist than West Germany. West Germany, with the exception of the actual chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, was uh, full of old Nazis in the schools, in the universities, in the government, uh, in the police stations, in the justice systems. And they did pay reparations to the state of Israel and to individual survivors of the Holocaust. But there was a kind of silent bargain. We'll pay as long as we don't have to really think about and examine what we did wrong uh, or really change the way that we run our country. Now, that began to change in West Germany through the efforts of activists, churches, uh, artists, writers, people who were forced, wanted to force their parents and their teachers to actually face up to the crimes that they had committed. 
which is why the 60s in Germany were so much more intense and often violent than they were in other parts of the world. It wasn't, however, really until 1985 that the West German president, Richard von Weizsäcker, actually called uh, May 8th, the uh, day of the end of the war, a day of liberation and a very important speech that marked a change Until then, West Germans had described it as a day of defeat or the day of the unconditional surrender. And what shocks most people outside Germany is the fact that the Germans saw themselves as the worst victims of the war. Um, You know, they had lost the war. They had lost 7 million people. Their country was dismembered. Their cities were in uh, ruins. And on top of that, the Allies were trying to tell them that it was all their fault. And this was a, you know, this was such a deep uh, consciousness that many people didn't even talk about it. They just took it for granted. So it took 40 years for West Germans to change the attitude of being the war's worst victim to saying, well, yeah, we suffered, but there were actually people who suffered a lot worse and it was our fault. So you think that East Germany did a better job, ultimately, of cracking down anti-Semitism. And that wasn't just because it's a regime that being authoritarian was able to control the speech of its citizens more more closely. You think that's more fundamental than that? I do, because the leadership was fundamentally opposed to Nazism in a way that the leadership of West Germany really wasn't. Now, this is not to say that that East Germany did a perfect job at all. And I have to, you know, people have criticized me for um, making the claim that they did a better job as if saying anything good about East Germany was uh, approving of Stalinism or authoritarianism or whatever. And of course, there are many things that one can criticize about East Germany. But if you simply look at their policy of dealing with the Nazi past, and if you talk to people, and I, I interviewed in the course of this book, many people who had been citizens of East Germany, and I specifically interviewed dissidents, that is, people who had opposed many, many aspects of the East German regime, and often at serious risk or uh, to, to their own uh, jobs and careers, all of them said, yeah, I can criticize all kinds of things about the East German system, but the anti-fascism was genuine. And I think it's important that people remember that. That is really interesting because I too had, I guess, what we would call priors about West and East Germany based, I suppose, on having been, you know, an impressionable teenager at the time when the Berlin Wall fell. And it took me quite a quite a mental effort to think, well, actually, maybe they did do a better job uh, than than I would have assumed. Um, The rise of the alternative for Deutschland, though, it does tell us that there's still a lot more to be done, despite Merkel's welcome for refugees and how inspiring that was. Is the an urgent thing in Germany now to work on the present rather than working off the past? They're deeply connected. And that's one of the things that the, the AFD has shown us so clearly. That is, they became famous and they gained support Um, during the refugee crisis and opposing taking 
in uh, any refugees. Uh, and at the same time, they, the other plank of their platform, as it were, was to say enough of this, uh, the guilt cult, as they called it, uh, or what other country in the world has planted a monument of shame in the heart of its capital, referring to the Holocaust Memorial that um, is impossible to overlook if you visit central Berlin. So they showed very much how connected those things are, how, how much our attitudes towards racism and xenophobia in the past affect our attitudes in the present. The good news is that the AFD, uh, their polls have been falling, um, largely because this government has done, um, as I mentioned at the very beginning when you asked me how things were, this government has done a very good job of dealing with the pandemic. And it's interesting that our few protesters, there are not so many, but there are some uh, against the COVID regulations of mask wearing and so on, those people are largely from the right. The AFD is the only party that's supported, uh, you know, these protests uh, allegedly for freedom and liberty. But to answer your question, is there more to be done? Look, um, one thing we need to understand about this process of working off the past is it's not like a vaccine. It's not like there's one thing that you can do and inoculate uh, you know, everyone in the country against racism and xenophobia. It doesn't work like that. Okay, It's got to be a multi-layered effort, and it's going to take more than one generation. Think about how many generations in every country, as we're becoming aware, you know, internationally since the explosion of interest in Black Lives Matter uh, at the end of May, um, in every country, we've had uh, generations of systemic racism, and it's foolish to suppose that you're going to get rid of it in one blow. Um, this is a, a long and multi-layered process. Um, you were described in the book. You go to Mississippi, and you describe how some of the locals have been have been trying to deal with the legacy of racism in the South well before Black Lives Matter happened. The big protest this spring, and the movement took off. Tell us about the work they were doing and how it was received. There are a number of groups. In I, uh, I should, by the way, start by saying that uh, I didn't go to Mississippi for half a year because I believe that racism is only a problem in uh, in the in the deep South. That's not true. But I look at uh, Mississippi as a kind of magnifying glass uh, because they're so aware of the history of racism and aware of their history in general, that it's a good place to study the United States and United States history in the extremes. What I uh, was so moved by were, were the many numbers of people, black and white, who were committed to facing uh, Mississippi's very grim racist past. Mississippi, for those who uh, who don't know about it, is a place where to this day, um, many, not just people of color, but many, uh, shall I say, liberal-leaning, left-leaning people are just afraid to cross the state line. I was too. 
Mississippi had the highest uh, number of lynchings in the country. But what you have today are people who have been working to bring black and white people together to meet in small groups where people meet for uh, a year, a year and a half, discuss race, discuss racism. You have people finally brought to trial who were responsible for racist murders. You have, I wrote a chapter on this town, Sumner, Mississippi, uh, 400 people, not quite sure that it even counts as a town, a village perhaps in the Mississippi Delta which is famous for one thing only, namely the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till which is all, in 1955, which has often been called the spark that lit the civil rights movement. I interviewed people ranging from the uh, son of the man who defended the murderers, a white man, of course, to a black man who was the son of one of the employees of the murderers who was sort of forced to be an accomplice to them. So you have a, a, you know, on the one hand, and take that town as an example, you have not just one, but two different memorial, uh, I mean, museum is a little bit exaggerated because it's so small, but that's called one of the museum and the other is called an interpretive center dedicated to the memory of this one very famous lynching and um, the hope of using that as a tool to address racism today. And on the one hand, you know, it's quite extraordinary how much there is there. On the other hand, the signs that were put up to commemorate the various stages of the murder have been shot up some seven or eight times. They have finally raised money and um, put up a bulletproof sign, but it's uh, it's striking how intense both the the commitment to remembering civil rights history and the history of of lynching is and the hostility towards it. And of course, we see this right now uh, in the crucial months before the U.S. election. We see this being played out on a national scale with Trump's most recent decree. Not only does he want to keep the names of Confederate generals on U.S. Army bases, but he just recently decreed that uh, no federal funds would be given to any organization that supports anti-racism training. Reparations are one of the most controversial topics in US politics at the moment, and you devote a whole chapter to it. And you say, interestingly, that when you started writing it, you weren't convinced yourself that they were the right thing to do, but now you are. Uh, The arguments are obviously complex, but can you talk us through a bit how you came to that conclusion? So what people have to um, know about the United States, which very few Americans actually uh, knew until recently, and I was certainly one of them, Slavery did not end with the end of the Civil War. It officially ended with the end of the Civil War, but it evolved in new ways. And there's a sense in which there's a hole in Americans' historical memory that stretched from 
1865, which was the end of the Civil War, until 1964, which was the first time you had national uh, civil rights legislation that did away with all of the different repressions and laws which made uh, the lives of African Americans significantly worse than lives of white people. Let me give you a couple of examples. So shortly after the Civil War, you had the period of called Reconstruction for 12 years, in which you genuinely had continued progress towards uh, civil rights. African Americans were allowed to vote. You had many of them serving not just in local uh, offices, but in uh, in Congress. You had reparations in the form of 40 acres and a mule was the uh, famous slogan. And it was actually realized that enslaved families were given 40 acres of land uh, and a mule to help work the land as compensation for all of the unpaid labor that they had done, they and their ancestors had done, and given that uh, abolition left them with nothing. So you had quite a progressive set of legal structures which produced an enormous backlash. I mean, we're seeing a backlash right now, or you know, in the last three and a half years, uh, to the Obama presidency. You had a backlash in the South. Um, you had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And in a disputed election in 1876, the northern states, which didn't, um, I mean, some people in the North obviously cared about racism and equal rights, but certainly not a majority. And the federal troops that had protected black civil rights were withdrawn in 1877. And that was the end of Reconstruction. And what you had was the introduction of the so-called black codes, where perfectly normal behavior, such as being unemployed or uh, talking loudly in front of, uh, in the presence of a white woman, selling vegetables after sundown, I mean, a whole host of ridiculous combination of behavior, were criminalized and uh, African Americans could be arrested, thrown into jail, and put to work under conditions that were significantly worse than conditions under slavery. Because under slavery, where you had um, individual slave owners made an investment in a human being, they cared about keeping their investment alive. The mines and the plantations that used convict labor didn't care. They knew that they could always get more convicts to um, work for free. So you had a a system of neo-slavery that was actually in many ways worse than the original slavery. Uh, I'm sure you've seen, or people will have seen pictures of chain gangs without really realizing just how desperate and widespread this whole system was. The same goes for lynchings, uh, which was another way of controlling the uh, black population. And it's shocking to know that we still don't have a federal law against lynching. 
Uh, it was proposed in the wake of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that Congress should pass finally after people have been trying to um, get a federal law against lynching for um, many, many decades. It was proposed and a Republican senator uh, uh, voted it down. So um, that, is, that is extraordinary. It, is extraordinary. it just happened in June. Um, yeah. So in any case, you have a system of not just individual prejudice, but legally sanctioned discrimination that reached into all kinds of economic benefits. For example, people who had served in the armed forces in World War II were given mortgage loans that were guaranteed by the federal government. Those were not available to African-American veterans, for example. And so what that means, and what again, what, what most white people don't know and what I didn't know until I began doing this research, is you didn't, your family did not have to own slaves in order for you to benefit from a system of white supremacy. So it isn't... It, it's very easy to say, look, my family didn't own slaves. Uh, they weren't even in the country until 50 years after slavery was abolished. Why should I, what do I owe uh, African-Americans? And the answer is, look, if it all ended with slavery and if Reconstruction, which was an attempt to give full equality to black and white people, if that had triumphed, uh, African-Americans would be in a very different situation than they are today, but it didn't. And there was a deliberate suppression of information about just how bad uh, the, again, I have to emphasize, not just individual prejudice towards black people, but legal structures were uh, officially until the end of the 60s. Is there a case then for reparations in Britain too? There certainly is. Of course, Britain has a very different history than the United States. Uh, Britain managed to outsource its slavery uh, to points where it was much easier to forget about it. But first of all, the empire is enormous, even though there are conflicting figures about it. I believe that there's uh, one absolutely reliable number. But if you think about the fact that the British taxpayers only stopped paying reparations to slave owners in the Caribbean in 2015, then you think about the fact that um, some reparations to the countries that were built on the slave trade and on the colonial uh, system is absolutely in order. You say the English have been even slower than Americans to face up to their national crimes, and that will come as a shock to many in a country that has reveled in being on the right side since 1939, if, if not before. Um, is there a reckoning to come? Are we behind the curve on this, do you think? Well, I think you have been, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but I was, this is why I was very heartened to uh, watch from a distance what's been going on in England uh, since the end of May. This book was published uh, just almost exactly a year ago in Britain. So I had two back-to-back -back interviews last fall in London 
where producers or presenters asked me, well, what do we have to learn? Um, you know, the Nazis were about world domination. Uh, that has nothing to do with us. And I looked at them and I said, well, I thought the sun never set on the British Empire. Britannia rules the waves. Um, You know, there was just no connection between the idea that colonial history was something that needed to be faced and uh, any other part of history. In fact, uh, I talked to some extremely educated people who, when I talked about European colonialism, didn't think that Britain belonged under that category. Now, that's obviously really changed. I'm not equating British history with the Nazis. No two pieces of history are exactly alike. What I am insisting on is that, first of all, every nation would like to see its people as heroes. That's normal, okay? Secondly, if we can't see our people as heroes, we tend to see them as victims, victims of history. And the interesting and shocking thing, as I said earlier, is that the Germans too saw themselves as the war's worst victims. But what the Germans pioneered at doing was saying, wait a sec, yeah, we thought we were heroes, we felt like victims, but maybe we need to examine the ways in which we also perpetrated crimes. And through this examination, it is possible to come out a better, fairer, stronger, and indeed happier uh, nation than one was before. And I have seen that process take place in Germany. I first came here in 1982. I haven't been here the whole time, but I've been here for the bulk of uh, the decades in between. And I have seen the transformation that has happened in this country. What one has seen in Britain, the ways in which the, I strongly believe, unworked through colonial history contributed to Brexit, which most of your neighbors feel is a self-inflicted wound, the echoes of uh, empire that other many people have noticed in the whole Brexit discussion played a huge role. And we've now seen in the last three months, British people of color standing up and saying, you know, uh, yeah, we're better than the Americans in the sense that, um, of course, uh, there are fewer guns in Britain. And I I don't mean to uh, say that it doesn't matter if people get killed or not, but being better than the Americans, as Gary Young put it recently, he said, said, "I, I don't care to pick which racism is better, but I... I I feel quite hopeful at um, the discussion that has, it didn't begin in May, but it, it certainly took off in a way that I didn't expect to see as quickly and as widely as it has in, in Britain in the last months. Very interesting times ahead. Susan, thanks so much for talking to us. My pleasure. 
Yeah. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free and the night before general release if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>